I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Margaret Russell, a weaver of almost 40 years. Margaret has a long ancestral history of weaving in her family and is weaving in the same small coastal town in northeastern Massachusetts as her great, 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 great times nine grandfather, who worked as a linen weaver in 1635. I first learned about Margaret and her work when she emailed me about her preservation wraps project, which supports the conservation of watch-listed breeds of British sheep. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to Margaret more about her weaving and this project. Welcome to the podcast, Margaret. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm very, very happy to be here. Can you start out by introducing yourself and sharing how you found your way towards weaving and towards textiles? Yes. Uh, First of all, my name is Margaret B. Russell. I live in Byfield, Massachusetts, which is part of the town of Newbury, Mass. It's a coastal town in Byfield is a district of Newbury, and it is actually the rural area of Newbury. How I got into weaving is uh, a way back uh, as a child. I grew up in a family of doers and makers, so my parents were always examples of making something, doing something, using your hands and that they were my influences. I believe my weaving part here um, is a combination of nurture and nature. I, I truly believe I, I was destined to be a weaver. I will always believe that. As a small child, I, I was introduced to weaving not through any family members, because that goes back further into my ancestry, but going to different museums. And I I distinctly remember probably very young, five, six years old, of going to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown. My my hometown um, is a short distance from there. I'm a native upstate New Yorker. And it was what we call today a living history museum. And I remember watching weavers step in and out of barn frame looms. And I was mesmerized. Mm. I was mesmerized. Probably some of it was that here was this little house-like structure that someone was stepping in. But that something was also happening while they were in there. Uh, And that is, is, as I said, a really clear image in my mind. And my first loom, I, I also remember, I still have it here in my, um, my studio. It's a Spears rigid heddle loom. Uh, Spears are small rigid heddle looms. They're still available. You can find them on eBay. Um, and <clears throat> they're, they're used. They're no longer made, but they were made in England. And I remember seeing one in a, a shop in a city near us, a city of Schenectady, and just falling in love with it and leaving the shop and being home ill 
one one couple of days from school with a bad cold, not able to go back, coughing, that kind of thing, and wanting something something to do. And I remember asking my mom if I could have that loom. Uh, so my father picked it up during a lunchtime and brought it home, and that was my first hands-on loom. But I, I say now I'm really a weaver with probably almost 40 years of experience. I'm a self-taught weaver. Uh, when I started in my early 20s, there was no internet to go to to answer questions. Uh, so it was a lot of trial and error. And I, I love that about the weaving process. I still weave in that manner. I like the challenge of figuring out what is going on. And I can assure and reassure uh, weavers and would-be weavers that there are, there are solutions. So it's a, a really it's something that is fully encompassed my whole life now. I have pretty much most of my time to devote to it, but it has a, a long range, uh, very early beginning. And what kind of materials and yarn and fiber and equipment are you most drawn to? Well, I've always woven with natural fibers. I, I linens, uh, specifically wool. Wool is my fiber of choice. In order now, I can easily say wool, linen, hemp, uh, natural cottons, uh, and um, wild silks. Uh, vegan silk, peace silk. Those are my fibers of choice, but the top three that I really focus on now uh, would be wool, linen, and hemp. My looms are Maycomber looms. Um, they're made in York, Maine, and in the early 70s, uh, until the early 70s, they were actually made in Saugus, Massachusetts. Uh, they're a, a family-run business uh, that Family is pretty extended right now, but Leroy Maycomber was the first to make these looms, and he worked at General Electric in Lynn, and he was asked by some family members to make a loom. And the basic loom has not changed since his first loom. Um, I love the looms. I'm a tall person, so I need equipment that fits me comfortably and Maycomber Looms does exactly that. Um, and in my opinion, they can weave from the loveliest of loom controlled laces to rugs. So the full range. Um, and my equipment is very important to me. I, I love my equipment as much as I love my fibers. Um, I use pretty much now exclusively Enfeed shuttles. Uh, my prize shuttles are Crosley shuttles from England. Once again, they, they are no longer manufactured, uh, but they actually were the, the uh, they're the ones that made AVL shuttles uh, when they were manufacturing. So they are very much like an AVL Enfeed shuttle. I love the length. I, I, have the 15 inch ones. I was fortunate enough to find four um, new old stock Crosley shuttles for the price of half of a new AVL shuttle. 
um, and I like the weight of them. Uh, so I did not start out with AVL or cross-lead shuttles without, I didn't start out with the end feed shuttles, but I did start out with boat shuttles, which I still use for uh, different reasons, but um, I, I pretty much have uh, totally converted to using the end feed shuttles. I have, because I am sewing fabric now for clothing, I have um, older sewing machines. I really like vintage and reusing uh, machines and equipment and tools that are have already been used by someone else. Um, the Singer machines range in age from the 1918, I have an industrial Singer machine. Uh, then I have a Spartan, which is a small machine, similar to a featherweight size, but heavier, so better for a weaver's use. And then I have my mom's 1961 Singer. Uh, my Maycombers are vintage. I, I didn't purchase any of those new. Um, two are from the 60s and one is from the 70s. So I love the older equipment. I love the feel that I am a weaver in time using them, that I've had people um, using, whether it's a loom, a shuttle, uh, a, machine, a sewing machine. Someone had used this before me and hopefully somebody will be using these after me. Uh, fibers, as I explained, uh, are the natural fibers. I love the natural colorings and that natural colorings really dominate my work. And then I will intersperse uh, dyed, naturally dyed colorings or uh, low impact dyes. I am not a hand dyer myself. I'm exclusively a weaver with uh, stepping towards spinning, which I'll share a little later on with you. Wonderful. That what you've touched on is something that I also really love about weaving, like the connections to the people before and after us through mm -hmm. what we're using and the traditions of what we're doing. And I read on your website that you're really greatly influenced by the stories of your maternal ancestors who were weavers and wool workers. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could share some of those stories of your ancestors. Oh, by all means. They, they are my great influences. Uh, my very first connection is to Francis Plummer, who came from Newbury, England, which is really a coincidence that I'm living in the town of Newbury. But he was a first settler in 1635 to our town. And when he arrived here, he was a linen weaver. And it crosses my mind so often when I am weaving linen, could my nine times great-grandfather have ever suspected that his great-great-great-onward granddaughter would be sitting at a loom in the town he was the first settler of weaving linen? Uh, other influences, and these are all on my maternal side, other influences were wool workers in Bradford, England during the mid 19th century, which was the explosion of the, the industrial times in that part of England. But my, my very special person, so to speak, is William Truland. And he 
arrived in my native upstate New York in the early 1800s. He came from Balamone, Ireland, which is in County Antrim. And my studio is named in tribute to William Trulin, Antrim Hand Weaving Studio and Study. And he was a carpet weaver uh, working out of his home. I've been fortunate enough to do some genealogical research with the assistance of my husband on finding out more and really verifying uh, these various ancestors. And I've been able to see through the city of Troy, which is the Rensselaer County, which is the county that he came to and the city within that county, to go through the city directories back in the 1800s. And it lists his residence and it lists his occupation um, as a carpet weaver. So I'm doing more research and understanding not so much as a carpet weaver of rugs on the floor, but more carpets that would go up and down staircases um, in the, at the time, which would have been some of the very large homes in that area. So my, I feel my ancestors really do speak to me and are, are a part of who I am. And I feel I have picked up the connection where William left off uh, because he certainly was the last weaver that I can identify, though um, ancestors beyond him, my mom was, uh, she braided rugs and she sewed and my grandmother was a seamstress as well and, you know, also worked in a sweat factory on a machine, which is like the 1918 Singer machine I have. My great-grandmother did a lot of needlework. So there, there was that line that continued. But as far as an actual weaver, that's why I feel I'm so connected to William Truland um, and just continuing his legacy, I'm, I'm hoping. That's my mm-hmm. objective. Mm-hmm. So you and I first became connected because you sent me an email and you told me about a project that you've been working on called Preservation Wraps. Mm-hmm. And I just became very intrigued and in hearing more about it. And also I was sure that our listeners would want to hear about that. So tell me all about what that project is and why and how you started it. Wonderful. I'm very excited to share this. About... 12, 13 years ago, I, because of my ancestry, I thought I'm going to order some wool from British breed sheep. And at that time, it was a little harder to find sources, well, maybe not so little, I probably could say a lot harder to find sources of British wool. And I was specifically looking for wool in, um, in some area of the UK. And I was able to identify one of the very few sources, uh, Garthener, at the time it was called Garthener Organic Pure Wool. Today it goes by just Garthener. And um, they are in Wales. And they were raising their own sheep organically and purchasing fleeces from other farmers who were raising sheep organically and processing them and offering these wools in various weights and 
all the natural colors. At that time, there were no dyed colors. Everything were, um, they were the natural colors. So I went through the listing um, and decided to really jump in uh, because the shipping sometimes for me, accessing these wools ends up being more costly than uh, the wools themselves. So I ordered a very large lot of wool. I had given this a lot of thought and decided this was a direction that felt very natural to me. So I went ahead and I probably ended up ordering wools for 10 to 12 breeds and randomly selected among my, my choices a breed called Balwyn, B-A-L-W-E-N, which is a Welsh breed. And the only reason I chose it was I felt, I knew I was going to eventually weave all these different breeds uh, within my first order. But I thought, why not choose a Welsh breed since I'm ordering from a, a Welsh source? And as I started working with the wool, um, a lot happened. And as weavers, our hands are on our fibers so much, more so before they even go on the loom. And I just started to give a lot of thought to the story behind the wool, meaning the sheep themselves, the people that work with the breeds. And I am very much a texture weaver. That's uh, how I would identify myself. Tech texture is what speaks to me, what, what takes me away. Natural colors come second. And frankly, pattern uh, weave structures comes last. I weave a lot in plain weave because I want my pieces, the focus of my pieces, to be the texture. And it was at that point uh, that I started in addition to weaving, to do to start doing research. And now research is very much a part of my weaving life. The research being learning about this breed, learning about those who raise them, learning about why certain breeds were culled or slaughtered because they were no longer the breed of choice. And it pulled, it pulled me in and it went from one breed to another to another and it is very excuse me very much the the stories of the survival of these animals against a lot of odds and unfortunately those odds are very much at the hand of ours um, and that has where that's where it's brought me today so what I'm doing is I'm weaving a private collection of preservation wraps, I call them. And what they are is a group of woven pieces. They are all plain weave. They are all in the natural color of watch-listed British sheep breeds that are being raised in areas of the UK in areas of the USA, and soon I'm going to also include um, breeders in Canada that are raising British breeds. Their sizing ranges from 30 by 40 inches to 40 by 60 inches, so they're amply sized pieces. They really give you a feel of the different breeds. 
My objective is to make them look and feel as if I just went over to a sheep and lifted them off the sheep. And I will add hand spun when I can access it. Um, mill spun sometimes can make some wool feel somewhat flat and take away some of the real texture. Uh, so I will add hand spun. The, the sizing that range depends on, on me sourcing wool and how much I can get. And over these past years of having started work, work on this collection with the Balrun wrap being the genesis of the collection, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, where that was going to lead me. Um, but over the years, I've seen sources grow, fortunately. Um, and access to these wools, it's becoming um, easier to find sources. I do try to source from the farmers themselves when I can, which is quite often. However, not all farmers or breeders process their wool. Uh, some of the breeds that I am working with are predominantly raised for me, and fleece is a byproduct that sometimes is not even used by them. Um, I have contacted farmers and breeders that they've, they've never had anybody ask for fleece. Um, certainly not wool, wool yarn um, hmm. or fleece. And so I will get fleece if I can't get the yarn, um, which is a, another projected upcoming project of mine to work on. Um, but if I can get the yarn right from the farmer, I will. If I can get the fleece right from the farmer, I will. In the past, I have sent fleece on to mini mills um, if I can't source directly from a farmer or breeder or flock keeper, there are sources that represent them. And somewhat like uh, what Garthener did is purchase fleeces from area farmers and then go ahead and process themselves. So that will be my next step if I can't source directly uh, from a farmer. I'm curious a little more about the the wool that you're using for sheep that are grown for meat. Mm -hmm. um, I actually learned how to spin with wool that was on sheep grown for meat because I was working on a farm and we had a lot of that extra wool and I found it itchy and scratchy, mm -hmm. um, but also it was a really neat experience to be able to learn directly from the sheep that I was living around. And I'm curious, do you find really significant differences in that? in that wool um, because it hasn't been bred specifically for the wool? And is there a difference in like the way that you feel about weaving it? All right. Yes and no. Um, the differences that I find among the wools, and again, being a, a weaver who is just so taken by texture, I find the dis differences most significant among the breeds themselves. Not so much whether they've been raised for meat or, or fleece, uh, that certainly does make a difference, but it's the breeds themselves, the variation from breed to breed. Uh, for example, okay, uh, Herdwick, a breed from the Lake District, is 
is described as the Brillo pad of fleece. And it truly is. It is hmm. not anything that you would wear next to skin. Uh, their, their wool has been used in the past, um, if it has been used, um, was pretty much used for carpeting, um, and which a lot of the fleeces that aren't next to skin, uh, the, the alternative use is, is very minimal. Uh, so there's a range of, of wools that I'm working with. So we go from something that I, you know, I'll, I'll say is in the next room rather than next to skin is where you probably would like that, <laughs> that wool to be, uh, to something like, uh, the sow a sheep from St. Kilda, which is an extraordinary history of, if anyone is interested in learning about the history of an isolated community, uh, St. Kilda, which they're part of uh, Scotland, owned by Scotland, uh, the St. Kilda Islands, they had Boreray sheep and Soa sheep. And the Soa sheep, the St. Kildans actually used the inner coat to knit their undergarments. So the, the range is, is vast. And that not being a spinner, but um, with hopes to soon be and a need to soon be a spinner, um, that is that's where my focus is is the the vast difference among the breeds themselves, which relates to where the breeds are from, what areas they're from, are they. Uh, the Lake District, which explains Herdwick, which is uh, very challenging weather uh, or something where the weather doesn't challenge and there's a profuse amount of vegetation as opposed to maybe not much vegetation at all, but a, a sheep is able to manage on that. So that's where I, I focus in on, on the variation among the, the fleeces. Hmm. That's so fascinating. Do you find yourself having favorites or is there just no way? <laughs> oh, there, there is just no way. I yeah. think so. As I, I, I have, I have a favorite or favorite ideas among every breed. Hmm. That's what ends up happening. Um, whether it's a favorite story, there's a breed called Norfolk Horn and they they were slaughtered left and right. Um, unfortunately, they they were a breed that their legs were long, and they were very flighty. They did not like to be contained, so they were able to leap over fencing. And despite the fact that their fleece was white and soft, uh, you know, just just what you, the average person wants and you financially need, uh, they were replaced soon by sheep that didn't jump over fencing. And so many of them that were being raised were just slaughtered, except for one man, J.D. Sayer, who was a cattleman. And that's really his focus was on cattle, but he had a special place in his heart for this breed, and he had some, and he 
went around, and this was, you know, late 1800s into the 1900s, he went around and he bought up flocks that were going to be slaughtered. Granted, he ended up being the only person with the, with this breed, and there was a lot of inbreeding, but the story I love to share is when J.D. Sayer died and they opened up his wallet, he had one photograph in that wallet, and that photograph was of two ram lambs. Hmm. And if not for him, that breed did become extinct. The last ram accidentally drowned. Uh, the, the ewes that he had bred in the fall, in the spring, did not produce any ram lambs. That was the end of the breed. But it was brought back by backbreeding and crossbreeding. But because of J.D. Sayre, today we do have that breed. Not exclusively J.D. in a sense, because a lot of people then afterwards worked on reestablishing um, this breed. But that's just an example for that particular breed. That's my favorite story about Norfolk corn and that breed. And I, I find that each breed that I work with, there, there, there are, oh, there are stories that just you can't believe uh, what's happened to them or who was significant in in helping them. And that's where it takes me away. So that's why earlier when I said research now has become as much a part of this, and it is a, a huge part of my preservation wrap collection that I, I call the whole endeavor uh, weaving legends because it really is the actual weaving of the pieces and then the sharing of the stories. Hmm. That's really beautiful. Thank you. So what is on the horizon for you? Do you have exciting new projects? I'm sure there's just new <laughs> preservation wraps that you can continue to weave and learn from, but I'm curious what, All right. what you're up to in the future. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, yes, I have, uh, right now I'm on wrap number 46 hmm. and when I am finished, uh, there will be now closer to 80 wraps. I used to say well over 70, but this year two more breeds have been added to the watch list um, that I use as my guideline. And so now I'm pushing closer to, to 80 wraps when this collection is complete. Uh, so that takes up most of my weaving time. However, uh, I, I do have two other very significant works um, that I'm, I'm involved with. Uh, first is I've, I've always had an interest in weaving fabrics for clothing. And so over the past couple of years, I have been developing that and working uh, on making clothing. Right now, for me, they're prototype pieces that I, I benefit from. Um, I certainly would like to, in time, be able to offer um, a small, tiny run of, of those uh, for others if there's interest. But I, there's, again, something about weaving the fabric and then constructing a piece of clothing exactly how you want it. I'm a very functional weaver. I, I just see beauty in simplicity 
and uh, and function. So my pieces that I'm making certainly reflect that. And they are out of some of the British wools that I have left um, from my preservation wraps. There's, if I'm lucky, I have some wool left and then I can use that for pieces um, and combine it for fabric. And then I can't deny that linen for me is my fabric of choice uh, fiber. Hmm. Uh, so there's that. Then the second endeavor um, that I'm very excited about came grew out of a need. Uh, as I referenced that sometimes I'm not able to get wool yarn, but I can I can get fleece. And I actually have, I've received quite a bit of fleece and I actually have some fleece coming to me from a gentleman in Texas uh, for a sheep called Wiltshire Horn, which is a hair sheep. So there's not a lot of fleece they produce. Um, it's a very small amount, but he's gathered with his, his uh, flock, he's gathered about two pounds, which probably I can't even imagine how many animals that he had to collect that from. And again, very generous, unbelievable what some of the sources have done for me once they learn uh, what I'm doing. And so all he's asking me is to pay the shipping. Uh, he's hmm. not charging me for the fleece. And, and that it's just means a lot to me. Um, I have to budget for each piece. So that, that really means a lot. I always explain to people what I'm, I'm doing and why I'm um, so asking for fleece. But then comes, um, you know, I'm getting two pounds of Wiltshire horn or uh, other, other breeds where I haven't been able to get a lot of fleece. And a mini mill generally has a minimum of the weight of fleece coming in. So I realize I really need to learn to spin, um, to be able to spin the fleece that's coming to me for, for my wraps, because it really always does come back to this collection right now. It's, I've invested a lot of time and, and excitement in it, so I want to be able to see it through. And I'm left-handed, so I have I had a spinning wheel years ago, um, struggled with it, and then was able to weave on an upright wheel, and that made quite a bit of difference. So decided that I am able to spin. I certainly need to to get more savvy with it, but um, I contacted a gentleman in uh, Donegal, Ireland. And uh, because my ancestry, it is without doubt, my, my ancestry is very significant to me and uh, provides a lot of, as I said, inspiration. I contacted a gentleman who is a third generation wheelmaker. His name is Johnny Shields. And his grandfather taught his father and his father taught him. And he makes a Donegal wheel. It's a Saxony style wheel. And they they are they are just beautifully made. Again, I I relate <clears throat> relate them to my Maycumber <clears throat> excuse me my Maycumber equipment um, sturdy hmm. and that's what I need. So I contacted him and asked him would he be willing to make me? And this was a year ago 
April, I contacted him. And would he be able to make me a left-handed wheel? Well, he never had made a left-handed wheel, but he said, sure, I would give it a try. And so through the course of a lot of wonderful communication with him, in December, my left-handed wheel from Johnny Shields arrived. And it's just what I needed. Uh, And at first he just said to me, well, position your body differently. Uh, you can you can just do that and and I said no I it does not work I'm twisting myself around and then it was it was great because he himself once the left-handed wheel was done he himself positioned tried to position his body as a right-hander and he said I understand um, you know, and I'm getting older, so I I don't want to twist my body too much for long periods of time if I I don't need to, and it's new positions for me in front of a wheel. So I am extremely excited about this this wheel, um, and I just received I added on a distaff uh, because I would like to eventually spin flax, and that just arrived early this week. Uh, so that for me is my next or at least accompanying major endeavor with the preservation wraps. And it, I need to have those connections. I need for everything to connect. I don't want to step too far outside of the line. I know exactly what I want to do and what I need to get done. And I'm, I like to work that way. Um, I, I just have it all projected and that doesn't mean I don't need a little, you know, surprises here and there, good surprises, but I really know what I want to work on. Hmm. Well, I'm sure over the course of this conversation, you've intrigued lots of people that want to see pictures of these wraps or to learn more about you and your work. Um, you're really great at telling these stories. I'm wondering where online or on social media can people go to learn more about you and your work? Okay. Well, I, um, I would suggest visiting my website, first of all, antrumhandweaving.com. Uh, my email is on there. Admittedly, I am not um, on social media pretty much at all. Uh, you need to if you're interested, <laughs> get directly in touch with me. Um, for me, if I, I spend time on social media, that's time away from my weaving. I understand in that sense. I may not be promoting myself in all the areas that I could. Um, it's only of late that I have been doing just what I'm doing with you, Sarah, talking about my work. Uh, I'm at a point with this collection that it is now time for me to share it. I have spent these past 12, 13 years working almost underground on it. Um, and as of late, I what I'm seeking out and what I've been successful, fortunately, is art galleries showing work. And that not only uh, shows what I'm working on, for me, that's a huge step for hand weaving to be recognized 
displayed, exhibited in an art gallery. Uh, I've always worked hard to call it the art of hand weaving. Uh, so for someone to get in touch with me, if if anyone is interested, definitely send send me an email. That's not to say in the near future uh, there may be more ways to see what I'm working on, um, but. Right now, that's where I am. So it is somewhat limited. Wonderful. And I'm wondering if you could share some closing advice or words of wisdom that you think other weavers out there should be thinking about. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Probably, yeah, quite a few things come to mind. Um, First of all, I, I would say that you're... Your loom is your best friend, or at least one of your best friends, if you're fortunate to have some best friends in life. But I, my loom, my looms um, are, are definitely my best friends. And we work together in harmony. Uh, that's how I feel. So if something comes up that is an obstacle, or better say maybe a challenge, Work with it through your loom. Uh, There's nothing more satisfying, in my opinion, to realize you've figured something out yourself. Uh, My hesitation is to jump online to seek out an answer. Yes, there are times when that makes a lot of sense. But I would also encourage weavers or would-be weavers to sit in front of your loom or if you're, you know, whatever you're doing, whatever step of the process you're in and give yourself that little extra time to look it over and think about it. Um, a weaver's mind is, is quite extraordinary and uh, there are a lot of solutions within. Um, I guess something else I would say is definitely be inspired by others uh, by other weavers, but I've I've taught weaving for many years, and I would say probably the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, thrill in teaching was, um, and I have to say was because I'm on hiatus right now, but was when a student would find something that spoke to them, find what in weaving was really their signature, so to speak. Um, And so I say, look for that, pursue it, and make it yours. Make it be be your own. Um, And maybe in closing, um, sign your work. (laughs) (laughs) Sign your work in whatever method you can do. Uh, You know, particularly with women, there's, there's a fabulous book. It's called Identity Unknown by Donna Seaman. And it's rediscovering seven American women artists, one of whom is a weaver, Lenore Tawney. And she was born in 1907. She lived for a hundred years to 2007. She died. And uh, she's in the the, the reason these women are in this book is we've all seen the photographs in various art books where 
gentlemen are all named and there'll be a woman sitting there and it will literally, the caption will say identity unknown. Uh, so whatever form of art, whether, um, you know, doesn't matter, whatever form of art, sign your work. Uh, to me, that is so important and something I always, always encourage. Um, but I'd like to leave everyone with actually a, qu a quote by Lenore Tawney, which hangs in my studio. I love, I love quotes. And she really speaks to me. And I think anybody who works with fiber in some way, um, this will speak to them as well. I become timeless when I work with fiber. And that's how I feel. It takes me away. Um, I can sit in front of my loom and there I am. It's just my loom. It's my fibers and it's me. Hmm. And I leave that for everyone to hopefully think about and enjoy in that manner as well. Well, Margaret, I so appreciate you sharing that, that advice and also your stories and it has my creativity brimming and um, oh. I'm just, I'm so excited and inspired oh. about this conversation. So thank oh. you. Well, thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity and, um, I hope everyone enjoys our time together, and uh, I thank everyone for listening. Wonderful. That's a wrap. To see photos of Margaret Shawls and links to her website, go to www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 79. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode 79. I can't quite believe it that we are on 79 episodes, and I'm so grateful to all of you who are out there listening. I have a favor to ask. If you haven't already, will you go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review? Reviews help other people find our podcast and are a great easy way for you to help support our growth. Thank you. Next week on the podcast, LaShawn is talking with Casey Newman, an environmental educator, natural dye cultivator, and co-owner and operator of Cedar Dell Forest Farm. A forest farm that aims to maintain the health and integrity of the natural ecosystem while sustainably raising animals and growing food on the non-forested portion of the property. So stay tuned next week for that episode, and until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!